All right. So we're working through Isaiah. Um, this is going to be about a year-long series that's going to take us about a year to power through Isaiah. And we're going to take some chapters really quickly and some chapters really slowly. Uh, but here we're going to tackle two chapters together. Um, they, they tie together. That's not a, it's not an unnatural fit here. Um, so, but, but here's what we're going to see in this passage. Uh, this is the main point. That God clears the wreckage of sin so that he can build a beautiful new city in its place. That's what we're going to see. That God is going to take the wreckage of our sin, and in fact, God is going to proactively wreck us in some ways, to, to dismantle us of our sinfulness, but in its place, he's going to build something beautiful and hopeful for us. And so that's really what we're going to see as the main idea today, and we're going to see that through three general um, categories. First, chapter 3 is actually a very uh, sad chapter. It's a chapter that deals with a lot of loss. It's basically all loss, and and that's why we got to get into chapter 4, because that's where gain begins to happen. Um, But we're going to see the loss of stability. Uh, We're going to see the loss of luxury, and we're going to see in chapter 4, what we lose to gain. Okay, so that's where we're heading. If you, if you look with me at chapter 3, verse 1 through 15, we're going to see the loss of stability that the people of Israel encountered historically in their lives at the time that, that Isaiah was writing. He was preparing them for what would become uh, an onslaught of military conquest against them by the Assyrians and Babylonians and so forth. He's, he's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah uh, in a historical way, uh, but there is a lot of spiritual meaning in this that, that we can apply to our lives. So let's look at it um, in verse 1. It says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent uh, to their elders and the despised to the honorable. So in these first uh, five verses, we're seeing this main theme come out, that, that God is causing this loss of stability. Right? Think about all the things that God says he's taking away from them. Support and supply, Food and water, right? Can't, society cannot live without food and water. And so their society is going to be 
completely upturned here. Their society is going to lose all of its stability. The mighty man and the soldier, so their military is going to be conquered. The judges and the prophets and the diviners and the elders, their their spiritual leaders as well are going to be uh, taken away from them. The captain of 50, et cetera, et cetera, right? He's going through all of this. And then in verse four, he says, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. You don't want that, right? Sometimes we feel like people occupying the Oval Office are infants, but they're, they're not, not really, right? Not fully. Um, and so here's the thing. He's just making this point that all that we would normally um, see as a value, mature, godly people in leadership, it, that's all going to be replaced by boys and infants. And as a result, verse 5 says, people are going to oppress one another. They're going to uh, mistreat their neighbor. They're going to be uh, disrespectful to those older than them. They're going to despise those that they should honor. So society is just going to be up upheaved here. Now, verse 6, look at this. It says, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. Now, this is interesting, because this is actually kind of funny, because what's happening here is uh, all of society is gone down the drain. It's all been destroyed. All the support and supply is gone. And so what's left is this one guy who has a cloak. And the cloak is his credentials for leadership. Like, hey, you have a coat. You can be our leader. That's what they're saying. You can be our leader because you have a coat. I don't have a coat. You have a coat. You can be all this heap of ruins. It's yours, man. You can have it. It's yours. And this is just just displaying how despised this situation has gotten. And and then it says, verse 7, in that day he, that the guy with the coat, will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. So even the guy with the coat is going, I don't want this mess. I'm not taking this. I'm, I'm not going to lead this. So their best hope, their best chance with what's left is the guy who owns a coat. And he's going, no, nah, I don't want it. And so it says in verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord defying his glorious presence. You see, what's happening is that the people of Israel were not being destroyed because God was out to get them. This was judgment on their rejection of him. This is what happens when sin is plaguing the people's lives. They fall, they stumble and fall because of their deeds being against the Lord and they defied his glorious presence. He was with them and they completely defied him and rejected him. Verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. They uh, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, 
Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed you up uh, in the course of your path. So um, here's, here's the thing that's happening. In verse 9, it says that, it, well, verse 8 talks about their downfall because they defied the Lord. And then verse 9 says that they are actually proclaiming their sin like Sodom. They're, they're proud of it. They're proclaiming it. They're not hiding it. They're not ashamed of their sin. In fact, they're going to boast in it. And so this is just kind of going down in this downward spiral of all of this horrendous stuff. And then verse 13 through 15, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. God's saying to them, you guys have done this to yourselves. Your sin, your insolence, your, your rebellion, your defiance, this is your fault. He, he's, he's got mercy for them if they will heed it, but they're not. They're proud of their sin. They want to keep living in it. And so God has taken away their stability. He's removing, and now this happened historically in, in this point in time long before us, right? But, but there's, a, there's a spiritual message here that we'll get to in, in a moment. But what we're seeing is this, this upheaval of society. And when society just falls into anarchy, it's not a, a good thing. It's not a good thing. We need leadership. Human beings need leaders, and ideally good godly leaders. But when all of that is gone, uh, what's left is destruction and everybody basically destroying one another because they want what they want without the good of the others in mind. So we see the loss of stability. Next, in verse 16 through the end of the chapter, into verse 1 of 4 actually, we see the loss of luxury. It's just kind of highlighting again this loss that they're experiencing. It says, The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty. Haughty is a word for, that means pride. They're prideful. They walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants and the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors and the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. They had a lot of stuff. And God's like, I'm taking it all away. All of this luxurious stuff that you ladies had in Judah and Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm taking it all away. You won't have, it, have any of it. In verse 24, he says, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. That's, yeah. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women 
shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. So this, this has just gone from, you know, from bad to worse. It just continues to, to spiral down. And God is taking away their stability and he's taking away their luxury. And there's a reason. There's a reason. Because what, what God takes away from us, he does so to give us more of himself. The only way that people truly turn to the Lord is when they're at the end of their rope. This is why, and this is a little bit somewhat off topic, but not totally. This is why Jesus said that it's harder for a rich person to enter into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And, and there's, it's not saying that rich people, wealthy people can't or won't come to Jesus. It's saying, he's saying that it's very difficult for them to because until you get to the end of your rope and realize your need, you're not going to respond to him. You just won't. And so what he's doing for Israel in, in this chapter is he's saying, I'm going to take away everything that you hold dear, all of your stability, all of your comfort, but he's not taking it away just to destroy them. He's taking it away to help them gain something better. And that's where we get into verse 2 of chapter 4. Here comes the gospel's promise. This is what's beautiful. In all of these passages of judgment in the Old Testament, there's always a glimmer of future hope. He never leaves them without it. And look at verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, in that day, in that day, I think that's important, not in just some future day, but in that day, God actively is at work, right? And so he's, at, he's actively at work even in the midst of our losses, in that day, it says, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. In verse 2, he talks about this branch of the Lord. And the branch of the Lord is a reference to the Messiah. It's, it's used frequently in the Old Testament as imagery of, of God's uh, chosen man to save his people. It, it, there, sometimes he's referred to as the root of Jesse. Sometimes he's referred to as the branch or the vine, right? And he's talking, but he talks in terms of this glimmer of hope in the midst of all of this wreckage. And so it says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, that Jesus is going to come into this mess. He's going to enter into the wreckage of the human life and he's going to beautify it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to save it. In verse 3, he says, He who, left, who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, midst by a spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her whole assembly a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth and shade, 
a foreshade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. God is promising here that what they're going to lose is going to lead to what they will gain. They may be losing their broken world, but they're going to gain a a beautiful future and the very presence of God himself. It's, It's kind of wrapped up in imagery. It's not blatant, but it's wrapped up in imagery of this, of this branch of the Lord and this, this, these verbs of God doing these things like washing away the filth. God is going to wash away all of our sin. He's going to cleanse us from the bloodstains of our sinfulness. He's going to create uh, over the whole brokenness of the world. He's going to create a beautiful new Mount Zion. He's going to create this. And, and then where he builds this is where he will be forever. Look at the verse uh, Uh, verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it says that he will be a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. This is a reference back to God's presence with his people in the book of Exodus. Remember when they left Exodus, or they exited out of Egypt, and the chariots of Egypt were coming after them, and they were caught between the armies of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. What did God do? He created himself into this pillar of fire that blocked out the the armies of, of Pharaoh from harming them. He guided them by night with this pillar of fire. He protected them during the day with his presence. And this is just a reminder again that God doesn't cause us to lose, to just take everything from us, but we lose to gain. With God, it's always losing to gaining. And it's gaining his presence. It's having him that we gain. And, and that is better than anything else, right? We, we can be content with a rope instead of a belt or, uh, or, or baldness instead of beautiful hair or sackcloth instead of rich robes. We can be content with the loss of all those things because we have Jesus, we have his presence with us. We are in his presence and he is always with us. Now, now we need to ask ourselves though, as we get, um, we need to connect this to the gospel, right? We need to connect this to, to ourselves as well. How does this connect to us? We can read Isaiah 3 and 4 and go, well, it doesn't apply to me. This is about Judah and Jerusalem. It's, it's about them. We're not there. We're not, we didn't live back then. We're not a part of those those cities. But here's the thing. All of this does connect to all of God's people through all time. And, and C.S. Lewis states something that I think is really profound. And one of the things he says is that every story of conversion, so every story of someone turning from their sin and turning to Jesus, C.S. Lewis says is a story of blessed defeat that every story of conversion is a story of blessed defeat. We have to lose in order to gain. We have to. We have to be on the losing side before we can (laughs) embrace Christ and all that he is for us. We have to be defeated. 
And every person in this room and every person in the world who, is, who has gone to Jesus and confessed their sins has been defeated by him. This is everyone's story in some form or fashion. And, and I think we see this very beautifully in the Apostle Paul's life. Um, if you flip over to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3, Paul really demonstrates this for us. Look at what he says in verse 2. Um, he's, he's combating here in Philippians 3, he's, he's going to combat this idea of legalistic obedience to the law, that if we can just somehow live the right way, we're okay with him. And the Christian message is never that we can just live the right way, because in fact, we can't. When we try to live the right way, we just end up as a burning pile of wreckage, just like the people of Israel. But, but he's saying that, he's going to say that, that that whole outlook is completely wrong. Look at what he says. He says, watch out for the dogs, not literal dogs. He's talking about people here who are leading people astray. He calls them dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our ability to save ourselves. And then he goes on to say this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He says, I have, conf- I have reason to be confident in my, in my human nature, uh, but we don't find our confidence in our human nature. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he's going to list all of his, his uh, resume here. He's going to just explain how, from an outward perspective, Paul had everything. Everything from an outward perspective. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he was a part of Israel, right? People of Israel. He was in the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. We all remember the Pharisees, right? They, they were strict to follow the law. They, did, they didn't want to do anything that could step outside of the law. But did Jesus like commend them? Nope, he, he did not. Read the, read the Gospels. Jesus constantly confronted the Pharisees. But they thought they were righteous. And that's why he confronted them. Because they thought they were righteous when they weren't. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, zeal for his faith, he was a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for his faith that he actually arrested and in some cases oversaw the murder of Christians. He was a zealous person for his faith. He persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, that's the key phrase, righteousness as comparing to the law, he says he was blameless. He, he followed the rules. He did everything he was supposed to do. You would think that, you know, killing people and arresting people for their faith in Jesus isn't a commendable thing, but in, in his context, it was. The, the Christians were seen as these, this weird, uh, messed up group of people that needed to be stomped out. So he did his part. He did everything he thought he had to do. But then look at verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. At whatever gain I had, 
It's all loss for Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Paul, as have you, if you are a follower of Jesus today, Paul experienced the loss of his, of his stability. He lost the ability to be confident in himself to save himself. And that's step one for every one of us to respond to Jesus. We have to first come to the point where we stop trusting in ourselves. We have to come to the point where we first say, I actually, whatever I may bring to God that I think is good is actually just a bunch of garbage. It's loss. I don't have anything to offer him. I can't save myself. Salvation begins to happen in our lives when we lose our stability. And then look at what happens. At the end of verse 8, in the middle of verse 8, he says, For his sake, for the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He, he not only lost the stability of believing that his, that his work in the human nature was enough to save him, but he also lost all of his luxury and his comfort. Paul did not live a nice, cozy, comfortable life after following Jesus. Every, read the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul goes, he gets beaten nearly to death. Every time. Every time. He's beaten nearly to death. Rocks are thrown at him. He's beaten with rods. He's thrown out of cities. He caused a riot in Ephesus that almost killed him. He, He was shipwrecked multiple times on his journeys. Three times. Like once would be enough. I'd be like, all right. No more boats. I'm done. Uh, He gets on two more boats and they, probably a lot more than two more boats, but at least two more boats that also sink. Like the guy lost everything. He lost all of his comfort. He lost all of his luxury, but he counts all that loss as gain. He counts the things that he lost are just, the, the Bible here uses the word rubbish. That's a very, very kind way of translating that word in Greek. The Greek word skubala is the word, and it, the, I can't say what it would actually be translated into in English because it's being recorded. So, um, but it, it's, it's something that goes into a toilet. Okay, so we'll leave it there. Now, that's, that's what he's saying. He's like, it's all garbage. It should be, all be flushed, right? That's, that's the idea. And, and he says, it's all a loss, it's, it's, but it's not a bad loss because what he loses, he gains Christ. He gains Christ. And so it says in verse 9, he gains Christ and he is found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see how Paul saw his life? 
He didn't look back on his life and go, man, I was so comfortable when I was a Pharisee. I was the top of my game. I was, I was the, the guy everybody was looking to. But when he met Jesus, he lost all of it. He lost his, the respect of his peers. He lost uh, his livelihood. He, he lost everything. He, he ended his life in a prison in Rome, ultimately beheaded by Emperor Nero. That's, that's what happened. And Paul's going, but I have Jesus. And that's better. It's better to have Jesus and to lose everything else than to have everything and not have Jesus. I wonder how many of us can really say that for ourselves. I wonder how, I, I don't wonder, I know in my heart I struggle to want to lose things for the sake of Jesus. But we, we need to see that what, what Jesus takes from us, he does so so that we would be closer to him. He takes away the things from us that, that are only going to keep us from him. He removes those things, and as he does so, it hurts. But what we gain as we lose is we gain Jesus. As, as we respond to the gospel of grace, we lose our stability. Our, we, we lose any notion that we could save ourselves. And we even lose our comfort. But we gain Jesus. And that is vastly more, vastly better than anything we could lose here. Let's respond to the gospel of grace. Let's remember that what we lose pales in comparison to what Jesus lost to redeem us from our sin. Jesus left heaven to live a poor human life, ultimately to be rejected by his fellow man and to be murdered on a cross. He lost all, everything for us that we might have him. He lost everything so that you could have him. What a beautiful thing. What a wonderful savior we have. Let's not mourn the loss of our, of our self-saving stability. Let's not mourn the loss of the, of the ungodly comforts we may have in our life. Let's embrace the loss so that we can have Jesus and have him more fully and more beautifully in our lives. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to take some time to partake of the Lord's table uh, together. Today, we're going to take it all together um, as, we, as we do once a month here. Let's, so let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that you have loved us to the point of death. You loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Lord, you lost all so that we can gain you. And we pray that that truth would, would resonate in our hearts today, that we would be, like Paul, willing to lose all anything to gain you. We pray that that would be true in our hearts. We pray that you would grow that in our lives and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.